Hello and welcome to Reactives Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evi Kiori and in a recent episode of this podcast, together with Annie Tubbs, we discussed EU plans to enhance solutions to tackle corruption and sought feedback from NGOs. Today, Annie and I focus a bit more on how corruption affects people on the ground and why this is such a complex issue to address. For this episode, we spoke to our journalist colleagues from Euractive Network, Alice Taylor, who works from Albania, and Oliver Noyan, who is based in our Berlin office. We also reflect on input from Alina Munjupipidi, Professor of Democracy Studies at the Herce School in Berlin, and Pawan Kumarsina, Director of Academic Programs at the International Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna. So why is it so important to get perspectives from what is happening on the ground? Our journalist colleagues are inevitably confronted with corruption-related issues locally. Um, Let's hear what Alice shared. In my career, I've been quite lucky or unlucky, rather, to live in countries that have um, significant problems with corruption. Firstly, Malta, um, uh, which is one of those countries in the EU which is often not mentioned along with sort of Poland and and Hungary, but has significant issues with corruption and the rule of law. Um, And then I moved to Albania, which, um, again, sadly, has a very poor record when it comes to corruption, organised crime and the rule of law. So I seem to have found myself consistently in the the centre of places where these are our issues. So as a journalist, obviously, it, it becomes a part of your beat, whether you like it or not, because this corruption is, is pervasive in every aspect of society, from the government down to, you know, your taxi driver not giving you a receipt because he's not declaring the income. And indeed, this can be a powerful reality check when we contrast it with various high-level solutions that are implemented or designed to fight corruption. Here's Alice again. My experience in Albania is very, um, everything here is done over a coffee. So um, (laughs) it can be anything from, you know, you're wanting to buy a house to hire a lawyer to apply for a residence permit or anything, you know. Okay, yeah, but so let's meet for a coffee and discuss it. You know, it's, it's very much, it's a lot of who you know. The government has recently introduced eAlbania, which brings everything online. Now, this was done in an effort to stamp out corruption. So everything from your taxes to applying for government services is all done through an online portal. The idea being if you remove someone from that, um, a human being from sort of facilitating that process, you remove the possibility of corruption. But what happens now is you file it online And you still have to have a coffee with someone to get them to pay attention to the the request that you filed. You know, this is, it's a very difficult mentality to change as well. This is an issue in countries where corruption is very, very ingrained. It's become normalized. Um, I find here sometimes when I've reported a scandal or something very corrupt that's going on, And people aren't shocked, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, that's who, that's how it is here. It's it's not who you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, so this is, this makes it very difficult to fight as well when it's become so ingrained. Interestingly, um, Pawan um, paints a really interesting picture based on initial feedback from students to the International Anti-Corruption Academy. 
there is a systemic corruption and the people who are coming from those countries still believe that it's fine, you can teach and uh, talk about corruption, but in fact, it, it won't work. I think there is a very firm belief in many of them that corruption is bad, but corruption cannot be fought. Whereas we really take efforts and uh, uh, when, at least for the master's students, I must say that when they finish their program after two years, we are able to convince them that even if corruption is difficult to handle, it can be handled, it can be controlled. And we give them tools for that. But surprisingly, when they come, uh, for example, especially on the gift policies, it's very difficult to convince a large number of people, which has a cultural issue. So is the Seydou gap this dramatic everywhere and for everyone? Maybe not. Um, Oliver seems more comfortable with the situation in Germany. Generally speaking, knowledge about corruption and what's going on is, 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 is pretty high in Germany. Also, Germany has like, a, I would say, one of the um, best developed, most developed um, media landscapes in on the globe, basically. And I think there's really a lot of reporting on those issues. And when, when we look at the recent scandals that we've seen, I mean, most notably the mask scandals, where the media who, who are basically um, um, drawing attention to it and um, digging up these stories and these things that are happening. In Germany, I think there are always two different kinds of levels when it comes to corruption. One is like corruption in the administration, and I would say like in the administration itself, it's completely absent. So that I would say there is no um, real corruption here, especially if you compare it to to other countries. Um, and then on 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 the second level, where I'd say it's more like the the government level. I mean, there are of course instances, but but I think compared to to other countries, it's not that much in Germany. But ultimately, the scale of global corruption is set to represent some 5% of GDP. Are comparative global indicators a helpful starting point? Yes, but as Alice points out, they're indicators only. I think it can provide an overall look, a snapshot, if you will, of what's happening in that country. But I think you then have to look at other reports which are maybe done at a more local level. You have to dive down into what journalists are churning out, you know, in terms in terms of these these issues as well, to really understand what it's like in practice. You know, these organizations, Transparency International as well, they do engage in dialogue. Um, but Again, they're not really getting the full picture. Reporters Without Borders, they do liaise with the number of journalists in the country. They do follow what's going on. But again, um, there is areas that they don't touch on. There are areas that they maybe don't get the full gist of. It also depends on who they're speaking to as well. Um, you know, whether the person you're speaking to is independent, whether they are sort of politically aligned in any way. There's lots of factors which can influence the outcome of these reports. Um, also, mentioning Reporters Without Borders, a lot of countries saw big drops in their scores this year, Greece um, and uh, Albania as, as two local examples, but the methodology had changed as well. So, I mean, there's various things to take into account when we're looking at these indices, you know, and you also, you can't compare sort of a Transparency International report with um, this World Rule of Law report, for example, because the methods are completely different. So. I like these reports. I think they are a useful barometer, if you will, for the situation. But we do have to sort of take them with a pinch of salt in a way and be careful to contextualise them as well. The devil is in the detail. And, and Alina is clear that indices can create a false sense of security. So I think that across Europe, there is um, 
a very large variation in how corruption is treated. Some countries had the illusion that they are free of corruption, but as we have seen, you know, banks in London or banks in Denmark or banks in Germany, countries of very high reputation, uh, proved out to be extraordinarily vulnerable. And uh, we have the paradox that the countries which are the most corrupt also have the strongest anti-corruption institutions because they had to fight corruption. Why a country like Germany doesn't have an adequate response to corruption at the top. They don't really prosecute. They are very shy. When judges sentence cases, they give very lenient sentences. Alina also highlights the fact that we are in reality dealing with two kinds of corruption. Corruption is first national corruption, the corruption which starts from the uh, policy formulation in the country. Everybody heard of the lobby of special interests trying to get preferential legislation, of corruption in administration, of corruption in public services, of corruption in public procurement. And this is largely a national affair where Uh, We have a lot of variation across European countries, generally very much tied to to the development of the countries. So poorer countries are generally more corrupt. But we have a different variant of corruption, which has been growing with globalization and which is particularly strong in the European Union due to the character of European Union as a multinational uh, polity. And this is cross-border corruption. And we have seen quite a lot of this. And this is the corruption related with Russians. You know, otherwise, how corrupt Russia is, I mean, many countries are are corrupt. But the problem with Russia's corruption is that it actually gets exported, that Russia has instrumentalized corruption for its political and, and business reasons. And we see, to our surprise, that our expectations from globalizations have not fulfilled. And instead of good governance drilling down from well-governed countries to the countries which were le- less well-governed, what happened was the, actually the opposite. We have these very aggressive actors, Russia, China, uh, Gulf countries, which come along and, uh, in fact, play unfairly. They cheat fair competition in business and uh, it turns out that quite a lot of people quite a lot of people are corruptible in uh, countries which in charts are very very well governed like west european countries so this other the second variant of corruption is the one which has been bothering us most because they had infiltrated banks the financial sector in general and uh, defense and a lot of other areas and we see this these days when we would need to be strong and put on united front and uh, where sometimes uh, problems exist due to this uh, infiltration which has been there for many many years for sure our journalist colleagues confirm this is an issue to watch out for a particularly interesting case is actually austria um, because like if we if we make like this division that i made before between corruption and administration and on a political level. And I think what is really interesting about the Austrian case in this regard is that it's teaching us a little bit of how corruption works and what what um, and what actually helps, uh, what, what actually is the fertile grounds for, for corruption to grow. Because what we had in Austria, especially with, with the last administration under Kurz, Sebastian Kurz, is um, we had a complete concentration of power in one person. So usually I think 
how corruption is generally avoided on a political level is if you have like a system of control in, inside the government, but also inside several parties. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractiv.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can listen to our tech podcast and our agri-food podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop a line at podcast at euractiv.com. There are nowadays um, also new, more dynamic uh, knowledge tools being developed by various organisations, including Alina's and Pawan's in association with the World Economic Forum. It is important to follow those and to think of how we track and learn from change. Here's Alice again on on this point in terms of um, her insights. So I was absolutely overjoyed to see that Kosovo is the country with the biggest improvement with the rule of law in Europe and second globally. Out of every country covered in the report, it was second in the world. Um, Its score is now above the global average as well, which is exceptional. And I think the Kosovo government is aware of problems that exist, but they are one of the few governments I have seen in Europe who actually care about improving things. They don't care just about looking good or enriching themselves. They actually want to make a change. They want to assert themselves as a sovereign country and as a country that is pro-European and has EU aspirations. This is really refreshing to see. And it places it head and shoulders above many countries in Europe um, and many countries, all the countries in the region. Now, this is fantastic because... You think of all those countries in Europe who are currently standing in Kosovo's way when it comes to visa liberalization and even joining the EU. um, And they they harp on about the rule of law and corruption and transparency. Actually, Kosovo is doing better than you. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to call anyone out specifically on that, but they are doing better than many other countries. And I think Kosovo has shown an incredible dedication in recent years to rolling out EU reforms, to aligning itself with with EU law, to stamping out corruption, to making meaningful progress in every aspect of society. Another country with a big improvement as well was Moldova. Um, That was one of the countries globally which um, registered one of the biggest improvements, which is fantastic as well, because as you know, Moldova as well has EU aspirations, Um, It's also in a sort of complex position geopolitically um, in the context of the war um, waged by Russia in Ukraine. So I think the fact that they are making big progress in improving the situation in terms of corruption, that's fantastic as well, because they're a country which has historically struggled a lot with the rule of law and corruption. So to see this kind of holistic improvement is really, really reassuring. So what helps make a difference? Can we establish that EU accession or candidate status is a strong incentive? It does seem there's a mixed picture. So the situation is a lot more complex than we might hope. I think for some it is, but for some it's not. So let's look at Serbia. Uh, They were one of the worst performers in Europe. Um, They fell two places, I believe, in this year's uh, report. 
but yet they are the ones in the Western Balkans furthest along with their EU accession progress. Um, and I mean, yeah, they've, they've had a lot of pressure recently for aligning themselves with um, EU sanctions against Russia, with EU foreign policy, but yet the rule of law is, is floundering. Um, another example, unfortunately, I'm sad to say, is Albania. They fell four places um, in this year's index, and that's despite millions and millions of EU funds being pumped into the country. The country is currently undergoing a justice reform, which has been funded by and backed by the EU, um, and yet they are still failing. They're still struggling. There was a, a report, I think it was February this year, it came out um, and it, it, it looked at, it was the European Court of Auditors, it looked at 700 million of EU funds which have been ploughed into the rule of law in the Balkans. And it's, it essentially found that the money was wasted and there were no actual tangible results from it, which is really concerning. And I think we need to look at why some countries are improving, um, while they have an EU dream, while some are backsliding. Um, because this can't be, this is obviously not just about the EU, because the money doesn't appear to be helping. The carrot doesn't appear to be particularly enticing to others either. We also saw North Macedonia, which recently opened its, um, well, it's, it's waiting still to continue its accession path. That rose one place. And Bosnia and Herzegovina rose two places as well, which is great. Um, they are potentially going to become a candidate. Um, this was suggested by the Commission, although it seems that EU member states are not going to be in favour of this, which is a shame because, you know, they're actually outperforming some of the European member states in this area. We also asked Alice about whether or not there's a perception of double standards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's look. We've had journalists murdered in um, the Netherlands, Malta, Greece. All are still unsolved years later. We have situations in Malta where they're selling EU citizenship to wealthy individuals from Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the European Commission has actually had to take them to court. But Malta is still continuing to do this, despite all of the rule of law, corruption concerns and scandals around it. We have the EU funding uh, Russian, not Russian, pipe gas pipeline projects, which are linked to Azerbaijan and were being investigated by one of those journalists before they were murdered. You know, Within the EU, we saw Hungary falling four places, which is no surprise. Uh, Spain fell by two places, Slovenia two places, Slovakia two places and Serbia two places. You know, what's what's going wrong in these countries? I think the problem is the EU is just not showing its teeth enough. Um, yes, OK, it's initiated procedures against Poland and Hungary and, you know, it's potentially withholding funds and it's cracking down, but it needs to be consistent in this approach. You, you can't sort of start this with, with two countries and then ignore what's going on in other countries and let it slide in your candidate, uh, the countries that want to join. You have to be very consistent in this approach. And I think the EU has a lot more power um, than it's currently sort of exhibiting. And it really needs to show its teeth and crack down on corruption, both in its own house and in potential members as well. So what do you see as the most effective means of fighting corruption? 
Although Alice sounded dubious about the digitisation of government services in her Albanian example, our interviewees do have a lot of ideas about what's needed. I do think digitalization of uh, and centralization of these services will make a difference. Um, I think it's very important that people understand the impact that corruption has on their lives. You know, um, for example, all the millions and millions which are not going into the economy um, and not going to the government and not being paid in tax. What does that mean for an individual person? You know, if people will soon want to change things if they understand how it hits their own wallet. Um, I also think that there is a necessity to create and implement structures where people can report corruption anonymously, um, because I know in a country like Albania, and I'm sure in other places in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, people don't report corruption because there's perhaps a fear of retaliation there. Um, they fear that, you know, their their permit for building will be not be approved if they report the corruption, you know. Um, so I think enabling this sort of whistleblowing, anonymous whistleblowing, if you like, is is really important. But also, um, I think police need to be better paid and better trained. I think if they are reimbursed better for their time, they will care more about the job that they're doing. And I think the courts as well need to be sort of really have corruption weeded out of them. And there needs to be ongoing and consistent training um, to teach members of the judiciary what is corruption and what is not, especially, like I said, in countries where corruption is, is part of the culture almost. So transparency, transparency both of government in the public sector, but also transparency in the private sector. We need transparency of financial transactions because a lot, a lot of the crimes which goes on are in the financial sector. And the only way to fight money laundering is to have transparency of financial transactions. And Europe has passed some some directives, but in fact, we are at the very, very beginning of this and it's still fairly convenient for uh, for criminals to, to navigate this maze, which comes out of the diversity of European legal and policy uh, arrangements. Mm -hmm. And that Europe is not as transparent as, as Europe uh, imagine it, imagines it is. And of course, and importantly, Alice and Oliver are clear on the important role of the media, but also on the very real challenges that journalists face. Um, I think the crucial role here for, for journalism is really to um, highlight those things, to, to dig them up. I mean, you know, the, the, usually when it comes to, to corruptions and instances of corruption and holding them in check, it's, it's, it's really about digging those things up. I mean, it, they are not apparent. It's like shady business that's going on behind closed doors. So it's really about um, investigative journalists who, who are taking those things up. The only thing we can do is to keep exposing corruption. Um, this is, you know, the, the main and the most powerful tool we have. I mean, you look at some of the scandals which have been revealed by the press um, in the recent years, you know, from the Panama Papers up to like the Pegasus spyware um, cases, you know, all of these without the media, these would have never come out, you know. Um, so the media are the only way that we get to find out about these scandals and this needs to continue. But unfortunately, the biggest problem we're facing at the moment in the EU and outside the EU is funding. Media are struggling. We are struggling to 
pay our bills, we're struggling to have our salaries paid, we're struggling to keep ourselves going, um, and we're put in a very difficult position because, you know, if we accept funding from governments, from institutions, from companies, there is this pressure there to be careful on what we report on, etc. This is a huge challenge for media of every size, and I'm yet to see a real model that works which keeps people, um, keeps reporters truly independent while ensuring the free flow of information to the public. Um, so we need to find a way, a way to solve this, to support journalists in their funding, because once you ensure that journalists are well paid and have access to funds to allow them to investigate without any pressure or direct or indirect influence, then we can keep doing our job and keep holding power to account. Without that, there is no real way to fight corruption. Uh, so, of course, going back to the State of the Union address and what we might collectively hope for, it was very noteworthy that our guests' final conclusions um, provided a more nuanced perspective, perhaps, um, than what we've heard so far in the official speeches about what will drive change. It's always about um, enforcing what's already there, you know, um, on an EU level, on a national level in member states and in um, in in candidate countries, you know, there are already robust laws against corruption, against money laundering, against financial crime, against criminal activity. These are already within the, the, the criminal code of every single country. We have directives at EU levels against money laundering. The problem is consistently that these are never enforced. These are not enforced. They are circumvented. There are failures in the police, in the judiciary, in the regulatory authorities. And then on top of that, the Commission, the EU, doesn't step up enough to impose consequences. Um, so, yes, we absolutely need to start with enforcing the rules that are already there. And then once that has been done, then we can look to close other loopholes. But what's the point in pushing out new legis legislation? Um, new directives, new packets of laws or whatever, and making speeches if you don't have the power to make sure that laws that have been there for, in some cases, like a century, are not being enforced on a national level. I mean, it's it's absurd. It just, it just makes it sound like lip service. And we hear an awful lot coming from the commission and politicians about we need to protect journalists, we need to enforce this, we need to crack down on corruption, there's no place for money laundering in the EU, but yet nothing changes on an actual practical level. And so this is where we need to start. I believe the only people who can really drive change is civil society and journalists, and that comes from making these people involved in corruption understand that they are being watched and they will be held accountable. Um, and I think this should be used as a push factor, a fear factor, as you will, for journal for for legislators and governments to really ensure, yeah, to really ensure that they enforce the rules that are already there. So we try to create an environment where um, 
free media can, can emerge where there is a diversity of media where and there's there's also no because what we see in in some countries is that, that there will be like some media be dominating the whole discourse and if you have like a dominant dominant media it's be um that's that's contributing to 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 a larger problem because then they they would be most susceptible for 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 manipulation maybe by um, by politicians we need a theory of change where broader parts of society push for change and not just the government. If societies would be changed by just laws and regulations, then we would not have the situation we have presently where the most corrupt countries in the world have the most extensive regulation and still they do not change. Thank you very much. I am Evi Chiori and this was Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit Euractiv for the latest news and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was produced by myself with the help of Annie Tubbs, Alice Taylor and Oliver Noyan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>